He's the assistant director of research uh, there, and uh, he also he went to UCLA that yeah. for medical school and residency um, at all of you. And uh, he is really funny, really smart, and really cool. So that's why I invited him. Unfortunately, <laughs> 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 really knowledgeable. He knows nothing about medicine. <laughs> 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 Okay, well, thanks for having me, guys. I hear this is a team month. Blood bleeding from the college of us. So uh, I'll be doing a lecture today on inherited and academic bleeding emergencies. Um, haven't given this lecture actually for a few years, so definitely afterwards, if you guys want to give me some feedback, things you like, things you didn't like, things that seem too easy, too difficult, too stupid, whatever, like feel free to tell me. Um, and again, thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. So I'm going to try to use this to click forward and we'll see what happens. So we push the left side to click forward. Okay, so here's what we're going to do in this talk today. So we're going to go really basic, back to medical school, but try to keep it simple and review clotting hemostasis. Uh, we're going to discuss some red flags in coagulopathy and coagulation. Sort of the meat of this talk work up diagnosis, management, and uh, selective inherited and atherogenic bleeding disorders. Uh, we're going to do spend some time just talking about sort of interesting historical trivia and trivia about things in general because I like to say really trivial things to make yourself sound smart. You know, did you know why like you know, the ligamentum slavum has its name? The ligamentum slavum, and you can tell somebody, and you know, maybe they'll come play you if you only blonde. So little trivia things sort of make you sound smart and make up for greater knowledge deficiencies, I think. Uh, and then at the end, we'll just summarize the key take-home points of the lecture. And this is a pretty small group, so feel free to stop me at any time, ask questions, share stories, etc. Okay, so going back to med school. So really, in the body at all times, you have two competing processes going on. You have coagulation on one hand and fibrinolysis on the other. Uh, and coagulation is broken up into three <coughs> different steps. So vessel constriction, which we don't think about very often, I think it's quite self-explanatory, that something happens with injury, the vessel constricts. And then there's primary hemostasis and secondary hemostasis. Now these things look ugly, but bear with me. We don't need to know a lot of detail. Okay, so primary hemostasis has a couple of key players, and here's what happens. So essentially on the far left of the light blue line, that's some endothelium, that's collagen, and that is protected normally by endothelial cells, which are sort of yellowish looking things. Now, in the setting of injury, what happens is you lose an endothelial cell, and von Willebrand factor, which is already sitting on that subendothelium, gets exposed. Now, this exposed von Willebrand factor, via glycoproteins, etc., can then bind platelets. platelets, right? And then attaching to the platelets comes in fibrinogen and lots of other clotting factors, and more platelets come, and you get a platelet flood. So this is primary hemostasis in its most simple form. Okay, now we go on to secondary hemostasis. No one freak out. There's a lot of things here. So we have, the, the only thing you need to know is the generalities of it, and this becomes important later in the lecture. So there is an intrinsic clotting pathway, an extrinsic clotting pathway, does this look vaguely familiar to most people? Coming together uh, to create thrombin and essentially making a common clotting pathway that ends up in a stable fibrin clot. Okay, so there's vessel constriction on one hand, platelet flood, and then this very complicated thing involving lots of Roman numerals, which 
that makes a stable piping fine. And that's all we're going to do uh, for coagulation. Now, the other side of this is fibrinolysis, so clot breakdown. So this involves a whole different set of proteins and enzymes, uh, and we're going to focus on the main ones here. So TPA is released from an endothelial cell. It converts plasminogen to plasmin, and then plasmin breaks down fibrin into fibrin degradation products, including your D-dimer. That's why we measure that. So coagulopathy clues. So you know when you're seeing a patient in the department uh, and you think, boy, could there be a bleeding disorder going on in this guy or this girl? What are sort of things you think about asking them and looking for on surgical exam? So what are the types of questions? This is where we participate. Easy bruising. I know the answer. So brushing your teeth, bleeding gums, easy bruising. What else? Mantis is a good one. Hematuria is a really good one. What else? Melana. History of. So history of the same in either themselves or a family member, right? Tooth extraction. Exactly. So that's a good one. Is dental issues. So I have a list here, which is not all inclusive. It has most amenities. <laughs> so spontaneous bleeding, bleeding out of proportion to the offending trauma. So if they have a really minor trauma, they come in with a huge bruise. Uh, if they have a delayed bleed, so they bumped themselves yesterday, now two days later, they're getting all these big bruises. Uh, Post-procedural bleeding, like I think Mark was just saying, so a dental issue, they go into the dentist and they just keep bleeding and bleeding and bleeding. Bleeding into the joints and deep tissue spaces, that's extremely unusual and should make you think about coagulopathy. We talked about nose bleeding, bleeding gums when you brush your teeth, heavy periods. Uh, in a baby, if they have excessive bleeding from their umbilical stump, so if you have a newborn that comes in and they say, boy, it just seems like it keeps oozing a little bit of blood, it's something to think about, uh, hematuria, and then family history. So we got almost everything on this list. And then the other thing you want to do when you're looking at the patient is just sort of think about, is this really mucocutaneous bleeding, which makes you think about what kind of a problem, primary or secondary hemostasis? Primary, so it's usually a platelet problem. Is it joints, potential spaces, which is usually a secondary hemostasis problem, or is it both? Because there's some things that can cause both. Okay, so let's go through some cases. So we're gonna do several cases and talk about different patients. So this first case is actually a real case, and this is a case that I had as a resident. So this is what we have. We have a seven-month-old Hispanic male. He's coming in uh, for low-grade fevers some vomiting, mom says, ah, he's not eating a lot, he looks a little lethargic, it's been going on for a couple of days, and so he sort of gets put in the waiting room, and at some point he has a generalized tonic-tonic fever. Right? So now nurses freak out, they bring him right back, there's no history of trauma for the mom, and uh, he has no past medical history of any kind, so that's good. So how does this kid look? He's febrile, he's tachycardic, he's lethargic, he looks dehydrated, and he has a big bulging anterior front panel. Okay, so immediately in this kid, Taking aside the topic of this lecture, what are you thinking? What does this kid need? Meningitis, right? This kid needs a septic workup, for sure. So that's what he got. So he got a septic workup, uh, his white blood cell count, whatever that's worth, came back normal. His hemoglobin came back at six, somewhat unusual. Uh, and he got a tap looking for meningitis. And he didn't have any whites in there, but he had yellow orange colored CSF. That's a problem. Now what test do we want to get on this kid? Well, he's got dentochromia, so he needs a head CT, right? And this is this kid's head CT. Oh, and by the way, we ended up getting coag to that one too, and he has a PCC of 90. So this is this kid's 
kids had TV. Okay? No history of trauma at all in this case. So he wasn't septic. He didn't have meningitis. And we know we have a kid who is bleeding. There's no history of trauma, and he has an elevated PCC. So now what do we think is going on with this kid? Epidural hematoma. Nobody has, but why did he get a hematoma this kid? And remember this right here, right? This is not normal when a child has a PCC of 90 split. But what does this kid have with the diagnosis? But this kid has hemophilia. Exactly right. So hemophilia, the most basic way to look at this is there's essentially two types. There's type A and type B. Okay? Type A is a factor eight deficiency, and it's the vast majority of the cases that you'll see. And type B is a factor nine deficiency. And it's also called Christmas disease. So how many people here have seen a case of hemophilia A? Not that many, actually. And it's one of those interesting things that you're not going to see a lot during residency, so I encourage you, when you do see it, learn everything you can about that case, because you may not see it again for the course of your residency. And how many people here have seen a case of hemophilia B? Right, so mainly just sort of the attending staff, because this one is extremely rare. We're talking about like one out of 250,000 people. But clinically, the two types are indistinguishable. All we know is they have bleed, they have elevated PCT. This is an X-linked recessive disease, no matter how it's spread. In 30% of patients, there's no family history. Okay, so let's talk a little bit about genetics. I said it was X-linked recessive, so who's this dude? Right. Now, now we're going back to like what? Middle school, high school? Uh, and on the left here, uh, I guess on the right, we have pictures of peas. Does anyone remember this whole thing? Mm -hmm. Right, this grid, that like four square thing, but not the fun square square. <laughs> right, so here we see green peas and yellow peas. And the whole deal here was that, you know, the, it was a recessive allele. He had two of them come together in order to give you yellow pea, this one to four ratio, and the non-fungi wearing red. So this is sort of what we think of when we think of genetics and when I think of recessive diseases, etc. And this is how hemophilia actually looks. So it's an X-linked gene, so there's a father without hemophilia and a mother who's a carrier, so she has one good one and one bad one, and of her kids, that unfun square, one of the kids is probably gonna have hemophilia, like the odds. Okay, so when I think of sort of genetics, this is what I think too, Mendel, you know, the square. But look at this. So this is something that comes from uh, some Jewish rabbinical literature from the second century. So read this. This is actually, you know, this is like we're talking about like thousands of years old. So if the first son of a woman is circumcised and he dies, and the second son is circumcised and he dies, you must not circumcise the circumcised. <laughs> <laughs> like, ooh, good job, guys. <laughs> so, but that's obviously not why this is so impressive. But in the literature, the answer is really smart. You should listen to that. But it further explains to me this. It further says this. Additionally, the sons of the woman's sister should not be circumcised, but the sons of her brother can be circumcised. That's pretty smart, right? So they had this stuff figured out a long time ago. So we're gonna sort of take a little break here and talk about what I'm calling the history of a disease that changed the world, right? Because the history of hemophilia is actually really, really interesting. And it starts here in the 1800s. So who is this person? 
It's queen. That's right. So th they called this a royal disease. So here's the deal. Okay, she was a carrier for hemophilia. Right, and you can see her here. This is her family tree. Pretty, pretty large, pretty impressive. Okay, and this is her at the top. Right, so this is Queen Victoria. And she had a slew of children, and one of her children, by the name of Leopold, died of intracranial bleeds. You know, this is like the 1800s, kids die. It's like not that big of a deal, I guess. But then, as she had more and more generations of children, she noticed that in the second generation, in her grandchildren's generation, all the males were getting picked off. They were all dying of bleeding. So interestingly enough, too, they wrote this, this kid, Leopold, they wrote a case report about him in the BMJ in 1868. That journal has been around for a long time. Right, so like I said, so several members of the family were dying of brain hemorrhages, uh, and now there's lots of different options here. I guess one is you can sort of mourn the loss of your family and really be sad and everything. And the other is you can turn lemons into lemonade, which is what Queen Victoria did. So she thought about this and said, boy, it seems like all my grandkids, all the boys, are dying of brain bleeds. Like, this sucks. It's happening to my family. But maybe it wouldn't be so bad if it happened to other people's families. So she took two of her granddaughters, Alice and Beatrice, and married them off to the Tsar of Russia and whoever was in charge of Spain. Nothing happened over there. Okay? So, but she did this intentionally because this was sort of the power struggle that was going on at the time. Who would take control of the region? So then what happened? Poor Nicholas. Poor Tsar Nicholas. So he married one of uh, Queen Victoria's granddaughters. They had a son, Alexei. And Alexei was born with hemophilia and had problems throughout his childhood. And as we get to later when we sort of talk about hemophilia itself, hemophilia can be an extremely painful disease. But we don't really think of it that way. And those of you who've seen cases of it know that to be true. So why is it so painful? Because the hemarthrosis, but it's not just one, it's again and again and again. And you wear away all the cartilage, you get really bad arthritis. So these people are in pain. And back then, now we're talking about the 1900s, it's not like we can go, oh yeah, well, we just kick them to the lauded or whatever like we would do now. <laughs> what do they do then? They hired a monk named Rasputin. And he did hypnosis on young Alexei. Right? Hypnosis to relieve the pain. And because it worked sort of, like any other placebo type medication does, I guess, he got a lot of influence within the Russian hierarchy. And so then, as the kid got, got more and more sick and eventually died, uh, Nicholas and uh, his wife didn't have enough time to do with politics, and they trusted Rasputin so much, they said, like, hey, man, you seem like you know what you're doing with this hypnosis thing and everything. Why don't you sort of take over and make some political decisions as well? And it was decisions he made that eventually led to the Russian Revolution in 1917. This was all started way back with Queen Victoria wanting to sort of ruin the, the hierarchical families of so that's just some interesting stuff about hemophilia. But now let's get back to the medical stuff. So in the 1930s, prior to that point, there was a feeling amongst the medical community that all bleeding disorders, all of them, were caused by platelets. Okay, but then some doctors at Harvard found that they could correct some bleeding disorders by adding a plasma that didn't have platelets in it. 
they're like, oh shoot, well this just got more complicated. It's not just platelets then, there must be something else. And that something else they called anti-hemophilic globulin. Right? So as long as you had this thing, this anti-hemophilic globulin, you wouldn't have hemophilia. So in the 1940s, there were a group of physicians at Oxford University who found something else very interesting. So they had a ward of hemophilia. And they found that if you took the blood of, they didn't do this obviously in vivo, but in vitro in the lab, if you took the blood of one of these kids and mixed it with the blood of the other patients, you could cause that blood to clot in a test tube. And it's like, okay, well there must be something very special about this kid, and it also means that there must be two different types of hemophilia. Because it's not just one anti-hemophiliac globulin with two diseases. And this was also published in the BMJ. Okay, so in the 1950s, uh, now we, you know, this is how we started treating people, and we started treating people with whole blood. Um, but many still died because the factor concentrations of eight or nine we now know to be the real problem are extremely low in whole blood. And the survivors were crippled because of what we've talked about before, continuous hemorrhage and hemorrhage and hemorrhage into the joint. So then in the 1960s, this is a really influential person in hemophilia history, Dr. Judith Poole. So she found a way to thaw down plasma and basically create cryoprecipitate. And cryo has a much higher concentration of factor, sorry, than whole blood does. I don't even know how to go back, but I'm gonna try. Okay, so in the 1980s, so now we're sort of making progress, we're making big steps forward in terms of treating hemophilia. In the 1980s, whole new problem. Half of the people in this world with hemophilia become infected with HIV because of all the HIV-infected blood before we screen for everything. Okay, in the 1990s, this band, Factor 8, came along and saved everything. <laughs> True. So what happened in the 1990s was we developed synthetic factor. So in 1992, the FDA approved recombinant factor 8. In 1997, they approved recombinant factor 9. And we also made desmopressin acetate, GDAVP, which I'll show you a little bit later, how that can help in hemophilia as well. So really it wasn't until less than 20 years ago that we had a non-blood way to treat hemophilia. Okay, so now let's get back to medical stuff. So the clinical presentation of hemophilia, we already went through the bleeding red flags, I'm not gonna go through those again. The real hallmark of hemophilia is hemarthrosis. And of those of you who've seen cases of hemophilia, how many of them presented with hemarthrosis? Probably all, all, right? All of them. The other way they can present, which I've talked about before, is pain. And this is more of a chronic issue just because of repeated bleeds into joints and the arthritis you get associated with that. But we're emergency medicine docs. Is that hemarthrosis gonna kill that patient? Yeah, hurts. But we wanna know what is gonna kill this patient. And there are hemophilia-related things that will kill the patient. One being a bleed into the airway. The second being a bleed that can cause compartment syndrome. The third bleed <coughs> being the retroperitoneum. Plus, we know we can lose a lot of blood back there. And then, of course, CNS bleeds, which is what my patient had, the little seven-month-old that I saw when I was a resident. Okay, laboratory values. So they do have prolonged PTTs, but the PTT may be normal if the factor activity is greater than 30%. We'll talk about factor activity in a second. The real way to test for hemophilia is to do activity levels of the two different factors, factor eight and factor nine activity levels. We can't do that, but you should know that that's how a diagnosis is made. Okay, so here's how we categorize hemophilia. 
Mild, moderate, and severe. I always like things that are really easy to remember. Mild hemophilia is described as a factor activity level of between 6 and 60%. Moderate hemophilia is 1 to 5%, and severe hemophilia, actually those are going to come in all the time bleeding, have really, really low factor levels, less than 1% activity. functioning factor levels, it's going to be really difficult. But that's why the PPT is important. Actually, you know, too, our lab actually runs all three now, just whether we order the test or not, whether they kind of re 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 release the results. But all, but all three are done. So they would probably call if it's elevated? Uh, I'll need to find out. But I know that the actual now, because it seems like everyone else does all three tests, or two tests with their INR, now it's the opposite thing. Hmm. So they do all but there's actually a price difference. Doug, Doug, Doug Peter Burns and I were talking about for some of the Quest stuff. There's actually like a charge though if you order both tests. So right now we're not getting them both. But it would charge you to be about seventy dollars each. Yeah. Really for counting mm -hmm. patients. Yeah. Yeah. Just for, for paying for it. Yeah, there's one thing that's lucky. You order the panel, they do all the work. <laughs> yeah. They only charge for the one you order. Because they're lucky they're working at counting. But they have that protocol. Yeah.
50 versus 25, 50, 100. Are you ordering uh, crops per se, or are you ordering specific uh, factor eight or factor nine? You're ordering specific recombinant factor eight or factor nine, assuming we have it, knowing that it's quite expensive. But it's a good lead-in to the next couple of slides, because what if you don't have factor eight and factor nine? <laughs> so you can do other things. You can give FFT, cryo, and DBABP. And we'll go through these in a second pretty quickly. But basically, FFT is just liquid component of a unit of blood, and it does have some factor eight in it. It has one unit for every ml. So it's got a little bit. It's better than nothing. Cryo, you can also use when factor eight not available. It's a little more rich in factor eight and von Willebrand factor, like that slide we looked at before. Judith Poole invented this stuff or thought of it. And it has 100 units of factor eight per bag. But if you work out the math, this is still not a lot of factor eight. It's just better than nothing. And what DDABP does, it actually doesn't work directly on factor eight. It works on von Willebrand factor, which through sort of another complicated mechanism we'll get into, it binds to factor eight and helps carry factor eight. So think of the two as associated with each other. If you give something, it's going to help the other one. And this will increase the activity of your level by two to five times. It may bring them up to three or five percent. Again, they'll do something. It's not as good as giving them factor. And you can actually give this stuff IV, sub Q, or nasal sprays if you have them. And there's doses there for pediatrics and adults. But those you probably would look up anyway if you were going to give a patient DDABP. Okay, so before we leave hemophilia behind, another trivia question Why is hemophilia B always known as Christmas disease? Anybody know? Yes. So whoever these doctors were at Oxford, remember we talked about that experiment where they mixed the kids' blood with the other patient's blood and found that one kid's blood could actually clot everybody else's? So he had hemophilia B, whereas everybody else had hemophilia A. And I don't know what kind of like selfless doctors they were, but they actually named the disease after the kid instead of after themselves. So I can tell you right now, if I discovered something like that, it'd be called Aurora disease in like <laughs> one second. But they named it after the kid. Okay, so now I'm going to move on to our second case. And this is our second patient. So he's coming in, and he's basically a 35-year-old male who had a dental extraction. Uh, he had some oozing, and the dentist said, ah, it'll stop oozing, don't worry about it, go home. And he says, it's still oozing, yeah, baby. So he's home, and now he's in your ED. And you ask him a little more, and he says, you know, I like do bruise easily. And my gums bleed when I brush my teeth. And he often has epistaxis. So you say, well, he's got no other meds, no history of liver disease. And his dad won't go through the dentist either, but he has really bad teeth because he has the same problem. Every time you go through the dentist, he gets a little bit of bleeding. So now you're thinking, eh, let's come find a family history here. So what are the thoughts on this guy? <laughs> What's his diagnosis and how are we going to treat his latest? I heard it mumbled. Von Willebrand disease. Okay, so Von Willebrand disease, much more traditional name. Here's the guy. This is Dr. Von Willebrand, named the disease after himself. So in 1926, Initially, we used to think of von Willebrand disease as a disease, but in reality, it's a family of different diseases, which we all, we call them all von Willebrand disease. It's the most commonly inherited bleeding disorder.
disorder, it affects 1% of the population, and it has various different forms of a genetic inheritance. It can be autosomal dominant or it can be recessive. So the von Willebrand factor, basically what it does is it helps adhere platelets to collagen. And, it does, and we talked about its relationship with factor eight. So this is right here from that slide we were looking at before, right? That von Willebrand factor takes subendothelium and lets platelets attach. That's how it works in primary hemostasis, which is why you tend to see these primary hemostasis type problems with it. So it can be a quantitative or qualitative deficiency. And this is what we talked about. It's actually a family of different diseases. Um, so in primary hemostasis, what it does, we sort of showed <coughs> that in the slide, right? It sticks to the subendothelium, lets platelets attach. But we also said that it works with factor eight, and factor eight is in secondary hemostasis, in that very ugly coagulation cascade. So it actually can present with hemarthrosis and things like that, just much more rare, much more common to see it with primary hemostasis problems. So there's three different types, type one, type two, and type three. Uh, and essentially, type one is decreased levels of von Willebrand factor, so it's a quantitative problem. Type two is a qualitative problem. You have plenty of von Willebrand factor around, it doesn't work. And type three is a complete lack of von Willebrand factor. And this type is extremely rare. It's the only one that's autosomal recessive. So clinical manifestations, we sort of talked about some of these before in the earlier part of the lecture. Nosebleeds, gum bleeding, bruising, heavy menses, prolonged bleeding from lax, and in type three especially, you may see secondary coagulation problems. So looking at the laboratory uh, eval for von Willebrand disease, uh, platelet count, normal, right? This is sort of, we think of it as a platelet problem, but there's no problem with the platelets. Your bleeding time will be prolonged. Your secondary coagulation things are usually normal. Your level may be normal or decreased depending on the type. The money is the von <coughs> Willebrand factor activity level, which is not something we would send, but this is how they're gonna make a definitive diagnosis of von Willebrand disease. <coughs> so we treat this, you can treat it via DDAVP. We already talked about that. You can give old school non-recombinant factor eight because that has some von Willebrand factor bound to it. You can do cryo and you can do FFP, but they're really not very useful. There's not much von Willebrand factor in there. What's the average age of diagnosis? Of von Willebrand disease? It's, it's pretty much all over the map because it's not one of those things, because a kid may have had a little bit of, you know, sort of nosebleeds and things like that that we think all kids get until they're 25. Some people may not get diagnosed until their 40s or 50s, whereas others may get diagnosed very, very young. So that's, um, um, yeah, that's my point. We could be the first one. Absolutely, we could be the first one. see them in their 40s and 50s and they don't carry that diagnosis, and we have to think of it. Right, so if you see a patient who comes in with, again, like we said, those red flags from before, yeah. just sort of, well, that's weird. Why do you get a nosebleed? You just got, you know, nosebleed. What I was going to make, I've actually diagnosed a couple of cases where these people just, oh, heavy menses, no big deal. You know, it's one of those things that, you know, back when you could get bleed times, actually, you got to do Now, you know, you get, get a factor tablet, right? You will actually catch this one. Right. So this is, yeah, this is a diagnosis that we may make for the first time. So that's a good point. Um, so those sort of, those other treatment mechanisms we talked about a little bit briefly, I want to talk about some that are a little more specific to von Willebrand disease, which you may not have heard of before. Uh, Amicar and transistemic acid, they both work relatively similar, except one is a drip and the other one is an IV bolus that you do every six to eight hours. And the way these two drugs work is we're going back to this slide here. This is the clot dissolution slide. So both of these drugs work exactly the same way. 
This conversion of plasminogen to plasmin, which can then break down fibrin, it blocks this step. That's what they both do. So this is a pro-coagulant, both of these drugs. We can also use estrogens, because estrogens increase von Willebrand factor. You can actually use them IV acutely. You probably have to call your pharmacist for the dose in this kind of a situation. But chronically, a lot of times, they'll throw these patients on oral contraceptives, patients they know have a bad von Willebrand disease. But the money shot for von Willebrand's disease are topical treatments. Okay, and there's three I'm gonna talk about here. So the first one is Surgicel. We don't use this very often. Super commonly used by most surgeons, right? So we use this, you can use this a lot for oral bleeding. This is a little bit of gauze impregnated with stuff that makes blood clot. I don't think it needs to be much more than that. It's topical, it works extremely well. The second one is topical thrombin. And this comes in a spray form and a powder form. Has anybody ever used this in the case of von Willebrand for any kind of bleeding? Okay, Surgicel. Surgicel we use pretty commonly. Is this the one with the dog? On, on the ads, the little dog with the cuff collar. That's the one in the ads. That's all right. It's got the ads of a dog. That's what they think it's sprayed onto him. Went to med school. I haven't. I don't know. And since I've had my Steve, I don't think I've seen a commercial in like. Yes, exactly. And the last one, which I have used before, is fibrin glue. And what fibrin glue is, it's very cool, this little device that has fibrinogen in one vial, it has thrombin in the other, and then you push it out and it mixes to the two together and creates fibrin. It creates like a really nice plug. Uh, we called cardiology. They said start some heparin. 
and the nurse says, uh, this patient is starting to vomit bright red blood, and her blood pressure went from 140 down to 80 over count. Back to the fancy scale. You're like, ah, oh, that sucks. I kind of want to get to the end of my shift here. Patient number two. He just got a patient from the Coumadin Clinic. They're having severe epistaxis, and he comes with a note that says, oh, by the way, his INR is 14. now, he presents with an hour of left-sided hemiplegia, you get a quick CT, he's got no mass shift or bleed, we talk to neurology like, let's give TPA, we give TPA, we're like, yes, giving each other high fives, and all of a sudden, his mental status goes to shit, and he starts vomiting. Back to the fancy scale. Now we're sad. And just when you think you can't get any worse, Oh, by the way, the nurse wants to talk to you. Remember that stroke patient? <laughs> His wife said that she's a medical malpractice attorney. <laughs> Just as an FYI. <laughs> and we're at the worst possible place now. <laughs> so, yeah. so we went from being super excited to feeling something like that. No! just like heparin is. The way it works is it 
binds to heparin and takes heparin out of, yes. the, out of the picture. Right? Uh, and the reason this is important is because protamine has a max dose. So the dose is 100 milligrams for every 100 units of heparin over the last four hours with a max of 50. And the reason that max is written there is because it is actually a pro, I'm sorry, an anticoagulant. So you want to make sure you don't give so much as to where it actually now has the reverse of what you're trying to accomplish with it. And if you give protamine, you want to give it slow and steady because it can cause an anaphylactoid type reaction. Everything on this slide is relatively important. Okay. So now let's say, just to finish off the learning circle, that instead of being given heparin, this patient had been given lovenox. We give a lot of lovenox now, right? Why do we give lovenox? Don't have the wrong risk. Easy, right? Easy, you don't have to do a drip, and blah, blah, blah. Lots of reasons. Yeah, but what if you get a patient with lovenox? Now, lovenox works very similarly to heparin. Remember, we said that heparin works on thrombin and factor 10A. But Lovenox only works on factor 10A. It only works here. So if you really want to monitor the effect of Lovenox, like if they're going to do this in a really critical ICU patient, they're going to follow factor 10A levels. That's actually what they will do. So Lovenox works here, factor 10A, takes out a commission. Now, can you give protamine to Lovenox? Yes, the answer is yes. Does it work as well as it does against heparin? No, but you have a very sick patient here. You're going to do what you can. So they say it reverses about 60% of the function of Lovenox. You have the same contraindication of the anaphylactoid reaction, the same maximum dose for the same reason they do with heparin, but the dosing of Lovenox, I will tell you right now, is very difficult to find. So remember earlier I said from hemophilia, if there's one thing you remember, remember this slide? From this part of the talk, if there's one thing you're gonna write down, it's gonna be this, because for some reason it's extremely difficult to figure out how much Lovenox to give. Even if you Google it or talk with CZIP or up to date or whatever, it's really hard to find these numbers. And the numbers are as follows. So it's based on your hours post Lovenox. So if they're less than eight hours post the Lovenox dose, you want to give it in a one to one ratio, so a max of 50. If it's between eight and 12 hours, it's a one to 0.5 ratio. And if it's greater than 12 hours, you're not going to get any benefit from giving it to them. Okay? So the magic number here is eight hours. Less than eight hours, it's a one to one ratio, up to 50 milligrams. And you may say, like, ah, what if you don't know? Just throw 50, throw the max at them. Like, don't forget that if you give it, it's actually going to work in the opposite of what it's supposed to do if you're giving it in the wrong clinical scenario. So those numbers are really important. Okay, Coumadin. So uh, I have a picture of a dead rat here. Why do I have that? Everybody knows this. So that's what rat poison is, right? It's super Coumadin. That's how we kill rats. We let them bump their little heads and freeze to death. better job than the fish testing scab does. <laughs> so, okay. So, Coumadin, this is going back to med school. We know we're some vitamin K dependent clotting factors, protein CNS. It's a half-life about 36 hours, and we follow Coumadin via the INR. So, back to this complicated thing here. Here's where it works. 2, 7, 9, and 10. And pro Prothrombin is also called 2. Anyway. So, that's where it works. Coumadin takes out those things. Now, a reversal options for Coumadin we can do FFP, we can do vitamin K, and we can do something called prothrombin complex concentrate. Who hasn't heard of that before? We have a protocol we use. Oh, we do? Everything you mentioned, we have protocols for home pharmacists. All you do is call a pharmacist, we have Lovenox for 20 hours, we call the pharmacist, know exactly what to do. Oh, great. We, have, we just last year, we developed a lot of stuff for the hospital. Chair of PHA. The problem is they don't. 
here. Guess what else you leave behind? Besides all these lovely tacos at your critical. <laughs> so, uh, right. Yeah, we have one of those at USC too. We didn't have one for a long time, and they are so great. So good to have around. But those aren't there in the community. Uh, okay, so FFP, we sort of already talked about it before. It has all the coagulation factors present in the initial unit of blood. Vitamin K is a coagulation factor substrate, so those two, seven, nine, and 10, right? Those are based off vitamin K. You can give it PO, sub-Q, or IV. Now, there's lots of different pros and cons to these things. So somebody give me like, some pros and cons of different routes of administration. So PO, what's the problem with PO? It takes a long time. It takes a long time. It takes the longest. We don't know exactly how long, but it definitely takes the longest. How about IV? What's the problem with IV? Burns, what else? Yeah, you can get an anaphylactoid type reaction, just like you can with protamine. So you can be giving the patient IV vitamin K, the patient's already sick, and now you're dropping their blood pressure and all kinds of other bad things. And then sub-Q or IM, the problem with sub-Q or IM? It's erratic, that's exactly right. So it could work really quickly, it could work in a really long time, depending on sort of the hydration status of the patient, a bunch of different things. So there's no perfect route to give vitamin K, to be truthful. And then like you said, the, the injection site. What's that? The bleed is the and injection. And it definitely can bleed at the injection site. And you basically change your tail. I think the actually the, the oral works as the same as the IV in terms of speed. Because you get more of it going right up the portal bed and deliver where it works. I think the, the patient's not critical and can't swallow it. Well, that the is problem. the problem. I think yeah. that when you look at a healthy volunteer, like someone who you're giving vitamin K to, that is probably true. But in a sick patient who's not perfusing, you know, the stomach lining, et cetera, I think it's much more erratic with oral. I could be wrong about that, but that's my understanding. Okay, so Veriflex, you guys have this here already, which is great. Are you guys using it? No, we don't it? have Veriflex. Uh, we have Sol9FD. Okay, but you have another one of the, so what these, all of these things are basically the same, just making money for different people, essentially. What, go ahead. Can you guys come up the last slide about using the vitamin K, IV? Vitamin K, IV, that's fine. Vitamin K, IV, be very cautious. Like, I, I agree to be cautious, but I have given it. I'm not saying, don't get I'm saying, yeah. just realize you're going to have you can't give it, just know it's out there, it can be given, it can be said to save its life, but be very cautious. It's just an anaphylactic response to it, I'll call it the drug. And, it's, and what Scott was just saying, like, that will frequently happen, too, where the nurse will say, like, I really don't feel comfortable, and then you end up having to push it yourself. And the way to mitigate that anaphylactic type reaction, like I said on the last slide, was to push it slow. So the slower you push it, the less chance you have of getting the anaphylactic
and then in one hour after the Veriplex, the median was down to 1.3, and the highest was 5.7, and they only had two patients over two within an hour. Most of the effect really is in 30 minutes. Completely reversing instantaneous, because yeah. at the Trauma Center in New Jersey, they, they were giving the Opaline SD that's on the market, and they were, were drawing INR DAPLOR, but different times, and they just arbitrary. They looked at the ones that they drew it like 10 minutes later. Yeah. Most of them were like an hour. They were still down to normal. I, yeah, I think, right, it's, but again, it's, like most of it's going to work within 30 minutes for sure, but they, I've seen a couple of studies like that now where they're doing serial blood draws, like every five minutes after giving it. It's amazing. It's fast. It's really fast. Wait, what about side and effects? Because most of the people who are on medication are on it for a reason. Another lead-in. Next slide. Okay. <laughs> so, uh, and the, just so you know, it lasts for... 24 hours. In this study, they were still anticoagulated, which leads exactly to uh, the question I was just asked. Okay, actually, it's two slides later. So first, let's talk about dosing. Let's talk about recommendations, okay? So this is a frequent problem, I think, because you see a patient who comes in, uh, let's say they're taking Coumadin, you are evaluating for something relatively random, and somebody starts in an INR, and their INR comes back at 7, you know, and they're here for a cold or something completely unrelated, and you're like, yeah, what am I supposed to do? I guess there's a protocol to tell you what to do. Yeah, we have a protocol that says what to do with repeated doses. So the protocol, I would assume, is based off of these guidelines. So these are the chest guidelines from yeah. 2004. What's that? We use those guidelines. Yeah, th these are like the definitive guidelines for what to do. So if the INR is less than five and they're not bleeding, basically just tell the patient, uh, why don't you go ahead and skip tonight's coming dose and resume your coming tomorrow. Pretty simple. If it's between five and nine and they're not bleeding, say, eh, I'd probably skip a couple of doses, maybe two days, and you're supposed to give them five milligrams of PO vitamin K if we think they're at a real increased bleeding risk. And if the INR is greater than nine, and this does have a limit, okay, if the INR is 57, like that one guy, you probably would do something about it. But here, you're still going to give PO vitamin K and just tell them, okay, stop your coumadin completely until a doctor tells you that your INR is back in the therapeutic range. Okay, now if they're bleeding, this is a different patient. Now these are the recommendations, are to hold warfarin and give your vitamin K IV. Now like Scott said, you know, there are big problems with that, with anaphylactic reactions. You have to think about doing this, but you should know what the guidelines are. And then if they have a life-threatening bleed, I think in that case, you're not even thinking about it. You're definitely giving the IV vitamin K, you're holding the Coumadin, and you're giving them whatever you have. So it's activated factor seven. If you have uh, some kind of uh, prothrombin complex concentrate, be it Veriplex or not. Mm -hmm. uh, I think it was James. If your brain shuts off like mine does a lot, late at night, go to M M MRAP. There was this guy who gave this great talk. I'm not sure what his name was. Mm -hmm. Thanks. Uh, yeah, there's a little plug there. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Sanjay gave a great talk about this. Actually, the, sli the slide notes, it's right there. So when you forget either our pathway, which, I, which may be hard to find, or just go to the M M MRAP slide, slide notes, it's there. Right. Thanks, guys. Or iTunes <laughs> U, which was, it'll be on iTunes U after yeah. tomorrow. That's right. <laughs> what are you going to just call me on my cell phone? That's right. <laughs> 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 don't be drunk with Ben. Don't go away. Tell their attending that they were totally wrong, and I 
so bad that I was about to transfuse somebody. Yeah, me to transfuse. Well, I wouldn't. I mean, but you know, how would you do? Well, I mean, this is this, now. This is a really complicated question, right? Because you know, as a resident, you're kind of stuck. And then once you become an attending, you do what you want. You know. So for me, if I, you have to remember that all these people who come down to our department are consultants, right? They are not primarily taking care of that patient. This is still your patient. So if you think the consultant says something incorrect, something you have either a medical issue with, an ethical issue with, whatever it is, this is your patient. You can write on the chart why you think that's incorrect and do what you know to be the correct thing to do. I mean, it's easy for me to say, you know, because, like, that, that I mean, it was not like the county, some medicine attending from the FKC, I'm to come down and say, like, hey, I disagree with the other attending, you know, I'm the only one there, so. But I think in the community, we, we see this problem a lot, and you guys probably see the same to your residents, that if someone disagrees with you, and you feel like you're correct, it's still your patient, and you make the final decision on what to order. But I don't do anything in medicine or in life to see that somebody tells me to. Sure. Yeah. And I'm no ethics expert, and Scott can attest to that. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Uh, so what you were asking about before, uh, sort of, you know, well, these patients are being anticoagulated for something. It's not like they're taking Coumadin for fun. You know, do we need to think about who we want to reverse and who we want to reverse quickly? Like maybe just because we think here they're bleeding now we're creating some whole new problem because it's going to take forever to be able to get them anticoagulated again. It's controversial. I want you to know the big thing. So patients who are high risk for having real embolic problems are those with mechanical valves and those with AFib with abnormal native valves. Okay, those are the two by far and away the two highest risk patients. Now on the flip side of that, low risk, DVT, and just regular old AFib or an otherwise healthy patient. These are extremely low risk of having an embolic or traumatic event after reversing an anticoagulation. But you have to weigh the pros and cons. Okay, so the last case is TPA. Now TPA, going back to this diagram here, works here. It converts plasminogen to plasmin. Just remember and breaks down clots. So in this patient who got TPA, what do we do? Well, we stop the TPA, we order stat hit CT, and this part of the talk is pretty simple. Whatever thing you can remember from the talk, just order that, right? Because this patient is going to do really poorly. So I would give them blood, cryo, FFP, platelets, if you have like activated factor seven, even though it's expensive, I'd give them the Amicar, like how did that work again? Doesn't matter, like Aurora said that'll help them clot something. So just give them Amicar, give them transoxemic acid, give them factor seven, just give them everything. Really, you can only the kitchen sink with these patients. Okay, so let's talk about some take home points. Um, so remember red flags in the history and physical, and you guys pretty much nailed that in terms of sort of what to ask them, things that make them high risk of having a bleeding disorder, know what labs you're gonna send, know how the definitive diagnoses are gonna be uh, made. Remember that there's lots of ways to treat hemophilia, but really the best way to do it is your factor. It's by far and away the one that has the highest concentration of what they need. You should know your factor doses. So for factor eight, what are the doses? 12.5 to 25.50, and for factor nine, 25.50 and 100. All right, so you just go over a few times, it's really easy to remember. And remember that von Willebrand disease is very common. Like we said, it may be a diagnosis we make in the ED, and it responds extremely well to topical therapies. Uh, and in terms of take home points for the second part of the talk, so some of these drugs we give, the anticoagulants, coumadin, et cetera, can be killer. Understand how they work. 
know about your pro-thrombotic and reversal agents. Remember those chest guidelines. If you have protocol here, you have when you're here, you don't have to remember them. Um, oral vitamin K is not bleeding. So in those chest guidelines, even if you can't remember exactly what to do, just remember they're all getting oral vitamin K if they need vitamin K unless they're bleeding. And if they're bleeding and you decide to use vitamin K or you're giving protamine, make sure 